How many of your employees are trying to balance paying bills and saving for retirement? Support your participants today and tomorrow with Vanguard Well on Your Way at institutional.vanguard.com. All investing is subject to risk. Advice provided by Vanguard Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. This episode of the Secret Library Podcast is brought to you by our amazing Patreon supporters. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash secret library. This is episode 106. I'm calling this episode the New York City edition because my guests are Stephanie Rosenblum and Lauren Weisberger. So you'll hear in a few minutes about how they're connected to New York. And this week's tweets and messages, I just want to give a shout out to a couple that we received. Um, Anastasia said on Twitter in response to last week's conversation with Scott Carney, um, she says, my mom climbed Kilimanjaro at 55. I'm still working on my first book. I think climbing is easier. And uh, Scott got in on the Twitter conversation to say he agrees that climbing Kilimanjaro might be easier than writing a book. So if you want to join in, I'm at Carol Donahue on Twitter and would love to chat with you about this show or any other show on there. You can always reach out to me. I also want to thank May for her response to last week's um, footnotes email about hoping that we would do an episode on research trips for fiction. We're definitely planning something along those lines. And if you would like to get footnotes, our weekly email about writing and the show, you can do so either at carolinedonahue.com in the contacts form, or there's a newsletter page at secretlibrarypodcast.com. Um, I also want to thank everybody. We've been getting really wonderful ratings and reviews that you all have left since we um, asked for them. So it really means a lot to have those personally, and it also helps other people find the show. So if you haven't had a chance yet, you can do so at our really easy, handy-dandy link, secretlibrarypodcast.com slash review, and that takes you straight to Apple Podcasts, and you can leave a review or a rating there. So that's about it, except one exciting announcement that the Coffee Shop Writers Group is going to be opening for enrollment again in a couple of weeks. So I want to make you aware of that. That's going to be happening in the middle of June, um, date to be confirmed. But if you want to be on the list to be notified first, it's going to be a small group this time, probably a maximum of eight or 10 people total. In the past, we've had it open to up to 12. So we're making it a little smaller this time. So you'll want to get in right away. And you can find out about that at carolinedonahue.com slash coffee shop. So those are all of the announcements I had for today. And so let's get on with the show. My first guest today is Stephanie Rosenblum, who is a travel writer with the New York Times. She's been a reporter with the Times for more than a decade in various sections, including business, styles, and real estate. She currently writes the Getaway column, as well as features and essays about solo travel, slow travel, and the impact of technology on our experiences. Her book, Alone Time, Four Seasons, Four Cities, and the Pleasures of Solitude is out this week from Viking. I really love talking to Stephanie about travel and going abroad and experiencing other cultures so much. In fact, we could not stop chatting after we stopped recording. Um, she's one of my new favorite people, and I really loved her book. So 
I know you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Um, yeah, for those looking for research trip and other adventures with travel, I think Stephanie is a great way to start. So here we go with Stephanie Rosenblum, part one of our New York City episode. Hey, Stephanie, thank you so much for being on with us. It's a pleasure. So as soon as I heard about your book, I knew I had to talk to you. And I'm very interested, first of all, with the reactions that people have to it. Because as somebody who is both in a relationship, but also a great lover of traveling alone, I wonder if people are both excited and also sort of befuddled, because I know some people who are a little bit intimidated by traveling alone. And I'm wondering what the reaction has been as you've talked about working on the book. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, yes, I, I think there used to be an idea that people who traveled alone were, you know, young and single, backpacking, you know, that was a, that was sort of the classic idea of the solo traveler, right? So I think in some people's mind, that's the person who does this. What was interesting in in my, you know, doing this is I discovered that, yeah, and I, I knew that there was a very wide range of people who do this, and also the, the baby boomer, too. That were, there were sort of these twin poles that people had in their head about, this is the person who does this. As it turns out, it's, yes, those are two types of people that do this, but also many people who are married, partnered, in relationships, end up traveling alone and more so now than ever before we actually there are some you know numbers on this because it turns out that folks don't both people are working people cannot always match up their vacation schedules you know or sometimes someone's traveling for work they're going to a wonderful place and they think oh you know it'd be a shame not to spend a little time during this work trip exploring some things on my own. Um, You know, there are also times where people travel together for one person's work and the other one is alone for part of the day and has that experience. So there's a very wide range of people. So it's been kind of fun talking to folks. And and also this is true people even who are married and who have children, uh, the number of people who are uh, going off on their own. So it's been very interesting talking to people about that and talking about the different variety of folks who who partake of this and who enjoy this. And yes, as you say, there are some people who, uh, you know, when I when I used to first talk about even doing this, sort of would shake their head and say, "Ooh, I don't, I that's not for me. It's, I would I would not enjoy. There's no way I could enjoy that sort of trip." I know. I find that sort of heartbreaking because, yeah, as you talk about the one of the things that struck me was talking about how you were treated possibly even better when dining alone in France and mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. was something that you experienced so I think of all these experiences that you can have while traveling alone and as someone who's also spent time in Paris alone and loved it that you miss out on when you're there with other people yes absolutely I mean I think the it's a really unique experience now I what is interesting is there are some people um, to your you know to your first question who said to me, you know, I never feel like I need time by myself. Like, I don't recharge that way. I don't find anything to be very 
different that way. You know, whereas for me, like, it's an essential part of my experience just as a, you know, as a human, and it's absolutely necessary. And, uh, you know, I found so much uh, wonder and joy in that process. But everybody has a sort of different starting point, right? So the question is, how do you, how do you find a way into this, if you care to find a way into this, that you can extract, like, the maximum enjoyment and benefit um, uh, from it? But, yeah, there are there are folks for whom it's it doesn't it doesn't have a natural appeal, right? Like there there it might not you know just sort of you say oh alone time or taking a trip alone, and some people hook into that instantly, and I think for some people they may not, and that's okay. Like there's you know there 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 are all kinds of trips and all kinds of ways to travel, but um, you know hopefully. You know, I'm hoping that with this, that even folks who are not naturally at that set point, that they can find a way to maybe, even if it's half an hour, get something from that time by themselves. Yeah, I think there is sort of an increase in books that we're seeing about the sort of introverted mindset. Mm -hmm. Like I'm thinking of Susan Cain's Quiet and other books that are sort of bringing to the fore people who are like, hey, everybody, I like to be alone. It makes me feel better. It doesn't mean I don't like people, but this makes me feel more like a human being. But And I think it seems like on the one hand, you could see traveling alone as a sort of extension of that introverted process. But at the same time, I've had experiences traveling alone actually in Italy. I was Mm. in Lucca, not in Florence like you. But where I met these people that I never would have met. I mean, I'm very much an introvert. However, I did talk to people while traveling alone and it wasn't exclusively about being alone. And that those experiences, you maybe will meet people for the extroverts out there who may think this book is not for them. Um, You may have experiences that you didn't expect just by virtue of your natural desire to connect with people when you're not surrounded by familiar people. Absolutely. And I also think when you're on your own, I think other people feel more comfortable possibly approaching you because, you know, if you're in a group or you have, you know, uh, somebody else with you, you know, people may feel, oh, they're, they're in conversation, they're occupied, I'm not going to strike up a conversation or, or you know, engage. But when you're, when you're on your own, yes, like as you say, you have your own sort of impulses that you may want to strike up a conversation with somebody, you know, at a cafe or, you know, at a museum or, you know, anywhere sort of in your travels, even on the, I've had wonderful conversations on airplanes with people when I've mm-hmm. flown by myself. Um, but I think also, at the same time, other people feel you may be more approachable. So, And I, I've said this to people before. I said, you know, somebody said, I don't like traveling by myself because I like to have people around. I said, well, you're going to meet a lot of people if you travel by yourself. That's the sort of irony of that experience. I've, I've met many more people when I've been on my own than when I've been in a group. Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about the process of planning and writing the book for anyone Mm -hmm. listening who's interested. I mean, most people listening are interested in the writing process. So I know that you, you picked the locations that you were considering based on the limitations of your work schedule and vacation allowances and didn't want to eat up, um, you know, all of your, all of your time that you had to take off with going really far. But I'm curious a little bit about how you laid out and what the candidates might have been. And I'm sure people have asked you this question, but if you had no time limitations and no funding limitations, you know, 
what would a part two book like? What cities would you uh-huh. want to include? Because I'm like, I just want to write this book myself like 10 times over <laughs> so you can plan it out. I know, right? You'd, it, should, it should just be a series every year, a new city. Exactly. <laughs> um, no, well, one of the places I really wanted to go alone uh, was Tokyo, and I have mm-hmm. gone to Tokyo alone. Uh, I think it's a wonderful place to be on your own. I mean, I, I, I loved, um, what was that? Uh, great movie. Um, oh, Lost in uh, Translation. Lost in Translation. Yes, I thought that you know I really enjoyed that film, but I, that was totally not my experience there. Uh, I I found I really you know connected with the city. I think it's a wonderful place to explore on your own because you know first of all you've got these temples that you can go to where you can you know really be introspective and be quiet, and it sort of lends itself to uh, you know contemplation. Then I think also the eating situation is wonderful. There were so many opportunities. There were stand-up sushi bars. There were sit-down bars. You know, a lot of times uh, when I went out to eat there, you were facing the chef, so you had that, you know, kind of lovely interaction. And then uh, sometimes even when people were eating as a couple and I was sitting next to them, sometimes we would end up striking up a conversation just because you're elbow to elbow, right? You're not at a separate table. So uh, that was great. The the food halls and department stores there are mind-blowing. So, you know, again, it's another thing that sort of lends itself to wandering around on your own and the kind of attention to detail that goes into a lot of things that are like the presentation of things there, it really just lends itself to you kind of spending time with it and looking at it and enjoying even just the packaging of something. So I, you know, I I would have gone certainly, you know, there were many places in Asia, um, you know, that I would have considered going, um, places I've never been. I've never been to Morocco, which... Mm you know, is, I, I find odd. I don't know how I've not managed to do that, but I haven't. And I absolutely, I would have done that. Um, you know, it, in some ways, you know, in some ways the cities matter in this book. In other ways, it could have been other cities, right? It could have mm-hmm. been many, it could have really been any place because I think some people say to me, well, what's a good city for a solo traveler? And I think, you know, there are certain qualities. Uh, walkability is a big one. I would not, especially for me, I'm in New York. I'm a terrible driver. Um, <laughs> it would take away tremendously from my experience if I had to drive. Now, on the other hand, I know people who love to drive and find it, you know, they can get in their head. Um, they can they can listen to audiobooks and podcasts and just have, you know, they can look at the scenery, like, the, you know, the solo road trip. But for me, it needed to be a place where I can do the slow travel thing. And for me, that means walking. So yeah, that sure. would that would be a big part. And I also, I think with these cities, um, it was important to me that there be water, that I could be along some kind of body of water and just kind of feel that. I, I think that sort of cities that center around water have a certain feeling that, again, like when you're by yourself, like you can just kind of go there and watch the world go by. And yes, you can interact with people or you can be thoughtful. And uh, I think in any other city, I would consider those are some of the things I would look for. But really, it could have been a lot of other places um, because I do think you can find those virtues uh, in, in many cities in the world. Definitely. I thought it was good. I mean, another thing that I related to as somebody who lives 
I mean, I live in Los Angeles, so I equally mm-hmm. want to not drive when I'm on vacation, yes, not yes, because yes, I'm a bad yes. driver, but because I can't bear to drive for another minute. So I think right. many people will relate to that. But the other thing I yes. loved was that it isn't necessarily... I mean, I'm sure plenty of people want to go away on their own and go to, you know, a tropical island or something. Um, But I loved that they were cities and that it was you were engaging with cultural institutions because that's the sort of trip that I tend to enjoy and to gravitate Mm -hmm. towards more so than I'm going to go veg out also because I'm possibly the palest person I know. So it's it's (laughs) more arduous and relaxing to be in a very sunny sunburn risk location. So I I appreciated that you spent time in sort of places where you're going to museums and you're looking at the Uffizi and you're doing those kinds of things. Um, Because I think the urban situation was probably important. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, In fact, one of the first, I had done a story for the New York Times a long time ago about going to the Caribbean alone. Mm. And um, you know, I enjoyed it. Like you can, as you say, you know, you can sit on the beach, you can you can relax, you can you know, you can curl up on a lounge chair with a book. It's it's very restful. But um, I, in, I, for to me, a city has a certain kind of energy, and I get all kinds of ideas, and I get excited, and it helps me in in a way. It helps me think about my life, and you know, sort of t- you know, take a moment and think, how's it going? Where do I want it to go? What do I want it to look like? What do I want it to be? And and you can get these, you know, these thoughts just sort of come, like whether you're looking in shop windows or whether, as you say, you're in a world-class museum and you're looking at art. Like there, there's just a lot of opportunity for self-reflection, but also learning, you know, just figure, like what is meaningful to you in life? What do you want to do, um, you know, for people who write? It's, it's you know, wonderfully inspirational. It's all around you. There's stories all around you. I mean, you can just go to a park or as I was, you know, talking about the rivers, like you can go sit down by a river and just so much is happening that it's a really fertile experience. And I, I love the I love the city experience. But, you know, you and I are also both living in big cities. Right. So I think there's something, there's something uh, familiar, uh, you know, about that for me as well. I, I never feel really out of sorts in a city. No, of course. I mean, if you do, then you probably don't want to live in New York. Yeah, <laughs> that's um, true. Yeah, that is, it's like the city to a T. I, I think probably Tokyo is the only one I can think of that feels more urban than New York. I think that's right, yeah. So as you were going to the places, so obviously you're going, spending the time there that you did and writing about it, how much are you writing while you're there? I mean, this probably plays out in the in the reporting that you do for the New York Times as well. I'm interested in how yes. you, because you have to really conjure the setting that you're in. And in writing about yes. a setting really viscerally, you're there, but you're also wanting to spend as much time in the setting, not writing about the setting. So how do you balance that challenge as you're writing about these places? Yeah, you know, I had allowed myself to experiment with that slightly. Like I thought, you know, when I embarked on this, I thought, well, there might be at the end of every day, maybe I'll write a little bit about it. And if I feel inspired and I want to, you know, write about it, I will. But to be honest, it never happened that way for me. (laughs) I wanted to maximize, as you say, you know, the time that I was there. And 
also, this I wasn't sure what this was going to be or what shape it was all going to take. So I just thought I, I knew, you know, certain things I wanted to see. I knew um, you know, certain places, directions I might want to go. And I just decided to, like, leave it at that and not hem myself in too much. So I wrote almost none of it while I was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took notes. I did take notes, you know, uh, as I do for stories. You know, stories for the times are different because – they're much shorter uh, right. than, than, than a book. And so for those, like you want to have your notes, you want to jot down, you know, sometimes you get an idea and you, you do a little run, like a four paragraph run or something like that, which I end up typing out on my cell phone, like while I'm, you know, walking around or sitting on a bench. But um, I, I rarely write a story when I'm in the place. Now, you know, the fantasy, of course, I think is if I could live somewhere for a while. Right. That would be different. That would be wonderful because then, you know, you could actually do the writing in the environment that you're in. Um, but almost none of the book was written when I was in the cities, with the exception of, like I said, you know, some notes and things that I, I took while I was there. Or New York, the New York section, probably, given that you live in New York. You probably... Yes, yes, that's true. The New York section was written, yes, while, you know, while it was winter, while I was in New York. Um, that's true. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, too, because I think it's easy for those listening to think about, okay, I can go to these cool locations and travel alone. But I loved one of the concepts that came up was the idea of the daily vacation um, mm-hmm. that you can take inside of your own city. Because no matter where you live, um, I remember I lived in San Francisco for like seven years and never went to mm. Alcatraz until I had moved yeah. away <laughs> and was back visiting and thought, it is just stupid that I've never been to Alcatraz. So <laughs> I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about the concept of the daily vacation and sure. how people can apply these concepts you know, in their own home location. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the daily vacation is something that was... Uh, dreamt up by a gentleman named Fred Bryant, who's a professor, uh, a psychologist, who is just a wonderful storyteller. And he is sort of the the father in the uh, in the uh, social science world of the idea of savoring. Mm. And the whole, I mean, you know, he obviously didn't invent the word, but as it applies to a psychological phenomenon of how do we extract the most joy from a moment? Right. And for the way he talks about it is that it is it is an active process. Right. It's not something that just happens to you like you actually have to participate in that. So for what just one example of that is, you know, if you are in a place and you know, I'll take like, let's go down by the river. You're down by the Hudson River in New York and it's a beautiful, like sunny, you know, crisp day and you close your eyes and you just you allow your senses, you, you, you allow the sound of like the, the slight wind to just, you know, come into your, in, through your ears and you sort of inhale and you can, you know, all the smells that are, are around you. And that active process of stopping and saying like, I'm going to listen, I'm going to breathe deeply, I'm going to just be with this particular moment, not worry about, you know, anything else other than the now that is actively savoring. So what he has what he's written about in his his work is this idea of the daily vacation which is a way to practice savoring no matter where you are. Uh and one of the things he suggests is that you take, you know, 20 minutes and you do something that is 
meaningful to you. Uh, and the daily vacation can actually be something you physically do. So for instance, I could decide, or we'll use your example actually, like you could be living in San Francisco and you could say, oh, you know what? I have never been to Alcatraz. Like I'm going to go, you know, now that's more than 20 minutes. But uh, in my situation, you know, sometimes I, I only have half an hour or between things. So I'll say, okay, I've always wanted to go walk by the brownstone where, you know, Mark Twain used to live. I just mm -hmm. want to see it from the outside and go, you know, and, and do that. And all of a sudden, like, you're treating your hometown the way you would treat a place that you're visiting, the way you would treat a foreign city because you're giving it that care and attention. Now, you don't have to go out and do something. The daily vacation can also be, you know, taking 20 minutes to meditate. It can be taking a little bit of time just to, you know, read as much as you can read of a book that you're enjoying. But his whole point was the, a vacation does it, this our idea that adventure has to be, you know, uh, you know, I loved the book Wild, but it doesn't have mm -hmm. to be that you're, you know, hiking a trail all by yourself and, 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 and be, you know, something really out there. It can be a quieter, small, daily indulgence. But this is a way to kind of connect with yourself and bring yourself into the present. And you can use it to enjoy your own city and you can use it to enjoy just your, your, own, your home or your backyard. Or, you know, maybe you have birds in the backyard and you've got a feeder and you just enjoy watching them. Or, you know, maybe, you know, I know people uh, who get into bird watching learn, you know, start sketching and love to do that. So you can do that. But it's, it's about setting aside that time. And he also talks about the importance of anticipating that time for the next day. So after you finish your daily vacation, let's say you do it, it's a Friday, you then want to think about what you might do for your daily vacation the next day. Because in social science, we've learned that anticipation is extra joy that you already have in the bank, right? So you get to you get to start enjoying something before it even happens, which is, you know, wonderful. So I love that and I have found that to be so true. That that in working with the concept of anticipation, particularly with travel, that it's so great to book something like months in advance. Yeah. So that yes. you can enjoy it because you and I think they have said, I've read some studies about this as well, that there is the anticipation period is more intense than the enjoyment you have after it's over. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yes, they've, they've done studies that show um, that that people there's a little bit of a dampening effect you know in in the in the moment um and there are some you know there are, there are ways that you can you know try to overcome that but i there's a one of the best stories i was ever told was uh elizabeth dunn who's at the university of british columbia um and she she's a social scientist and she tells a story about how she'd been anticipating this trip to hawaii for a really long time and had such enjoyment thinking about surfing and you know all of these experiences that she was going to have in Hawaii. She gets to Hawaii, she gets in the water, she gets bitten by a tiger shark. Oh god. And now thank god the the good you know spoiler she's everything fine, no serious, you know, like a little bit of scar but no, you know, serious damage to her. She's unhurt. 
she tells the story, and she's like one of the most delightful, you know, cheerful people. And she tells the story and says, but the point is that no one could take away all those months of joy that I had before the tiger shark incident, right? So, like, reality may not be what you were hoping it was going to be, but everything beforehand was wonderful. And she said to me, that's joy already in the bank. So I thought that was just such a wonderful concept, um, and and I love – you know, booking trips in advance. I, th- I think the the main key for people with that is just not to get to a place where you set your idea of what your trip will be in stone. Then right. things can get tricky because then you're wedded to this idea of like, and you're not being flexible and you're not, you know, open to serendipity and all those wonderful things that happen when we travel, and especially when we travel by ourselves. Yeah, I think that was something that's really crucial too, is that yes, you could, you know, plan your trip in advance and you talk about reading books and watching movies and things to kind of get in the mode of the culture. But what you did not do, which I was sort of fist in the air about, yay, was that you did not have like a spreadsheet of what you were going to do every five minutes (laughs) during the whole time of there. And like, and then I will go to the Uffizi and then I will go here and I will check all of these things off. And I, and whenever people talk about traveling that way, it sort of makes me feel exhausted on their behalf and that you you miss out on the like just sitting there and drinking an espresso and seeing what people are wearing as they're walking by yes I look I think that's the best part of a place and it's also the part it, it it's how you kind of remember a trip I think a lot of times when you're doing the kind of treasure hunt you know uh checklist you don't get the feel of the city because you're, you know, kind of running around. On the other hand, I, I am sympathetic to that uh, because for a lot of folks, you know, it's like that. this is the once-in-a-lifetime trip. Like this is the only time you're ever going to go to this place and, they, you know, you really want to see this one thing. Um, I, it, 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 I think it is a dilemma for people who, um, you know, are unable to travel to a place more than once or if this is going to be the only time that you're ever going to, you know, be in this particular location or, you know, your, your annual vacation. Um, it, it's, a, it's tough, but if you can trim whatever your, like, must-see list is to as small as possible, I think the trip ends up being much more memorable in the end because you just allow yourself to be guided by what is appealing to you in the moment and what you're feeling and what you're seeing in the city. And I just think sometimes the best parts of these trips is, as you say, like sitting somewhere and just soaking up the the culture that's around you. I think, I don't know. I mean, this is probably my own personal theory, but having a lot of friends who live in Europe and and telling them what our vacation allowance is in the U.S. And, you know, how and how most people don't even feel that they're allowed to take the time that they're given, that that feels right. scary for them to do. And these, you know, people in, in Germany and France looking at me and wide-eyed and saying, but that would be illegal here. It would be illegal for them not to get that time. Do you think that um, part of the shift in travel is, is due to our culture and, and how much time we allow ourselves to have any relaxation at all? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's very... Uh, it's it's very hard. I mean, because first of all, it's expensive. Um, you know, and there are ways to do things, you know, affordably. But if you're, you know, even people talking about traveling with families, it just it adds up. And I think that, you know, if you're going to do that one big trip a year, you know, you really want to make it count. And you think to yourself, oh, 
how could I, you know, I always wanted to do a, I felt like I should, I always wanted to do a travel book called like, don't go to the Louvre. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's exhausting. But, but yes, it is. It's exhausting. And it could take your entire day. It and then it's the like, is the Louvre, you yes, you're right. You're absolutely. And, and is the Louvre Paris? No, it's not. Is it amazing and beautiful and wonderful and something, you know, worth doing? Of course it is. But it's, it's, it's very, I also think there's a thing too where people feel, and I, I completely understand this, that you, of course you must do this thing, you know, like you're going to Milan. Well, you must go see the Last Supper. Well, first of all, you might not be able to see the Last Supper because those tickets sell out. Like, And then you're going to you stand know, in line uh, all day. And then, right. And you're going to stand in line all day. So, you know, so it's, it's, this is like anything in life. Like it is difficult to sort of just say, I'm going to have the experience that I want to have. Um, one kind of, I, I did this story a while ago and I really found it interesting. Um, I was talking to a professor about how he takes his students uh, to the Barnes Museum, I believe it's mm-hmm. once a year, and, you know, they go in and, and he says to them, you're going to take a minute, you're just going to kind of like go through a couple of the galleries, like walk around. He goes, but what I fundamentally want you to do is just find one thing, find one painting, one thing that appeals to you, that speaks to you on some level. And then I want you to go sit down and I think, and I'm, I, I may be getting the time wrong, but I think he says something like 30 minutes with it, like 20 mm-hmm. to 30 minutes with it, and, and tells them to go sit. And then he has them talk about it, write about it afterwards, and what that experience is, and I ended up interviewing one of the students who did this with him, and they, it was so meaningful to her, uh, this, this experience, and, a friend, and he, he was even saying to me when we had talked about how initially when he did this uh, project that, you know, some people kind of rolled their eyes and thought, oh, you know, like, I, I, this is a long time to spend with one painting, but I think the message of that is so wonderful, which is just that there is there is value in not feeling you have to go see everything and do every little thing, uh, and that you can find the thing that speaks to you and and try to figure out why it speaks to you and why it matters to you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think in our current culture, there's even more pressure. Like I, I remember growing up as a kid, like going to places and people being like, "Oh, the you must go to these twelve places or whatever." Mm-hmm. But now, not only do we have to go to those places, we have to take attractive Instagram photos and share them oh, while we're in those yes. places. And so it's harder and yes. harder to just have the experience for yourself, um, which I think is really important. I think it's important to just be allowed to have the trip that you want to have yourself, just like you can That's have right. your own relationship to that painting. Uh, no, absolutely. So what would you, what would you hope um, that people reading the book that that it might change? I mean, I could see something like, a daily vacation being a way that people could start to say, okay, maybe Mm -hmm. I'll try a daily vacation by myself, maybe on the weekend and Mm -hmm. see how I feel about it. And then maybe proceed from there. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I hope that, you know, there are like, there are the folks who enjoy spending time on their own. I hope that it sort of illuminates, first of all, that there are actually a lot of benefits to, to doing this, to, to having that time, and that they feel it's not strange. And I, I, as a kid, I always used to feel it was, and even not, not as a kid, I mean, even just as a young adult, a lot of times I felt 
odd saying, you know, I want to go for a walk by myself or I want to take a little time and, you know, where like there's a big barbecue on the beach and everybody's having a great time. And I am, too. I'm enjoying that. But now I need to step away from it for a little while and go, you know, go off on my own. And and I, I wanted people to feel that they don't have to apologize for that impulse, that that's okay. Um, and I think that in terms of travel, travel does not have to be far. It does not have to be expensive. It can be a little weekend jaunt. It can be, you know, an afternoon in your own hometown. Uh, there, there's actually a really nice, um, I, I think it's still available, meditation from Headspace where it's a sort of walking meditation uh, about looking around your own city. Uh, it's a, the, the, there's an app called Headspace, and they do they yeah, it's do great. With, uh, Andy Puttycomb. Yeah, he does very nice meditations. But this idea of kind of looking, um, another you know concept that Fred Bryant talks about is snapshotting the moment, right? So instead of literally snapshotting with your phone, it's looking around as if what you're seeing is someplace you're going to see for the last time, like wherever you are, and remembering, you know, making it a multi-sensory experience. That can really make a difference wherever you are. And I think, you know, this idea that the big trip, right, Paris or Florence, has to always be with someone else is just just not so. I mean, these are, you know, wonderful places to go and be on your own. And the other thing, too, is it doesn't have to – there's no one way to solo travel. So there's not this rule that if you go to one of these places, you must – to be a solo travel trip, that it's you're on your own the entire time. Like, you can join a day tour, you know, if you don't – want to spend a week entirely by yourself. There's all these wonderful, um, the peer-to-peer -peer, uh, dining sites now where people, you know, meet up uh, for a home-cooked meal in a city. I mean, these are in cities all over the world now, and you, you can go online and, like, and some of them are in people's homes, but others are actually, like, just in public spaces or picnics and parks where, you know, a local is preparing the meal, and you join, and you meet a few people who live there, and you can have a meal together. There's many wonderful ways, cooking classes, uh, you know, just market tours to punctuate that alone time for people who, you know, want to have both, right? Who want to, because the balance is really a very personal thing. Some people need more, some people need less. And so there are ways to kind of adjust that dial. And I think the key is just to, you know, n not buy into this idea that there is one way to do this or the same way we were just talking earlier about like, you must go to X, Y, and Z. Like that's, you know, it's silly. Yeah, I don't think there have to be rules about any of it. I mean, one of my favorite alone trips was when I did, I started off with a friend and then she went mm -hmm. and visited another friend in another city. I spent part of that next week alone and then we met up at the end. So there's like, yes, yes. you spend some time together, you spend some time alone, you come back together and you'll never know. I mean, it was weird. This, this alone partial was in Paris and I remember I rented this Airbnb, took a picture of the roof mm -hmm. line out the window was like, yes, this is my view. I posted it on Facebook and two friends wrote me within 10 minutes saying, are you in Paris right now? So am I. So uh, yes, yes, yes. it was hilarious. So when, if you go to a city that's not that off the beaten path, the likelihood that you will meet somebody else you know is vastly higher. So you may, um, you may, I mean, it was lovely to see them and I ended up having a really nice lunch with one and a really nice, you know, drinks later with the other, actually at Cafe de Flore, one of the places you talk about. Uh. 
Um, That's great. So, you know, you may, you may find these things happening. And if you really want to be totally alone, you may have to shut off your, your social media to hide yourself. No, and, and well, and actually what you just said also brings up a good point too, because, you know, on one hand, social media can sometimes can get in the way of an experience, but as you pointed out too, can also be a way, a wonderful way of having a spontaneous connection uh, with someone too. So there's a, there's, there, that's a great advantage. That's a great example of how that can really uh, enhance a trip. Definitely. Because it's like, it's all about being open to the unexpected, I think, going off on your own, where another thing you mentioned is that a side effect of it is that you get to do whatever you want. And you don't have to ask somebody, do you feel like doing this today? Yes. The only person you have to ask is yourself. Yes. And you, and you, I think too, you know, because everybody has their own little you know, their, you know, your interests, like the sort of thing that just gets you going or gets you excited, could be stamp collecting, you know, who knows what it is, but like, and you don't, when, when you're on a trip, you want to make sure that everybody in the group is happy, that everybody feels it's, that, you know, it's everyone's vacation, that time, as we were saying for, you know, Americans in particular is really limited. So it's like you, when you're by yourself, you, you get to do absolutely whatever you want and you can pursue those little interests. And, and I think that's important because also, especially for folks who are kind of figuring out like, well, what, you know, is the job I'm in, the job I really want to do, do I have some love, some passion, some something that I want to be pursuing that I keep gravitating to when I'm here, some hobby, um, or, you know, again, like, you know, if it's writing, what maybe the germ of some idea is is out there when you're by yourself. And, and these are really uh, special moments. And there's also something, too, about just you build a certain amount of self-confidence when, you're, when you have that freedom, too, to kind of pursue the things you want to pursue. And you, you, you get this feeling like, hey, you know, like, I'm alone in a strange city and, and, and I'm okay. Like I'm enjoying myself. Like this is really, this is special. Definitely. I mean, I think it's a good way. I think a lot of people, when they think about traveling alone, they focus on the ways that they might feel vulnerable or um, Mm -hmm. they might, it might feel scary or it might feel difficult. And I mean, I've definitely had that feeling when embarking on a trip, like, Ooh, how's this going to go? But at the same time, I think what, what you don't necessarily think about is all the ways, like you said, that you can pursue whatever interest you want. And particularly if you're a writer, you get to remove all of those distractions at home, like the laundry or other things you know, that you might choose to do saying, oh, I have to do this. I can't work on my writing right now, that all of those things are gone and that you'll have that space to really think about it when you're traveling by yourself. Yes, absolutely. Plus, also, I love, you know, I, I am very productive on airplanes. I don't know about, you know, other folks, but it's, there's not a lot else you can do. So it's a great, I find it a great time to, you know, take story notes. And that that is, I, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, I think the only writing about place that I've ever really done, you know, aside from once I'm home and I'm kind of sorting through all my notes is on the airplane. I love that. I actually, I actually don't mind flying. People always talk about how much they hate flying, and I, I actually really mm-hmm. like it because you're left alone to to think yes. and to work on things, and it's the greatest place to read a book straight through, too. 
Absolutely, yes. Nobody bothers you. You know, you have someone who brings you, you know, drink if you need one. I mean, it's, you know, it's really, like, it's great. And and I also find there's something, particularly these transatlantic flights, you know, they're long enough to accomplish something. And, you know, and then you can kind of, if you have to drift off to sleep and have a little nap, it's okay. And I just, you know, the lights are dim. So I, I tend to find it a really productive time for me to put ideas together and start, uh, and just start writing. Absolutely. I agree completely. So I'm glad to know there's somebody else out there who doesn't give yes. me a weird look when I'm like, I really love it. People are like, wow, that's a really long flight. I'm like, I know, it's great. I know. Um, I feel the same way. <laughs> that's so funny. So if somebody is listening to this and is like, okay, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to book a solo trip. What would like a quick checklist be that you can recommend other than pick up your book, which I would recommend so that they can kind of go through the experience vicariously a little bit first? <laughs> Um, but what else would you say someone who wants to travel alone, like what are three or four things they should do to put that plan into action? I think, I mean, first of all, you want to, you want to, you want to feel comfortable, right? Uh, and, and so I think the main thing is to just imagine yourself there and say like, is this, is this amount of time, like when you're trying to figure out, you know, how much time, uh, where you're going to go, what is your budget? You know, all those things that we ask on any vacation. You don't have to be a hero about it in the sense that, you know, it, it should be something that you feel is manageable uh, and that you're going to, that you're pretty much guaranteeing yourself that uh, you're not going to feel like, oh, I'm away for too long or I'm not, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to feel comfortable doing this. So as you were saying, you know, you had that nice spontaneous experience like meeting up with a couple of friends, but I would say if this is the first time that you're going to do this, I would actually try to find a way that if, you know, if you have a friend who's in that city, see if you can make an arrangement to, you know, have one or two moments um, maybe punctuated with meeting up with somebody during that trip. If it's the first time you're doing it and if you're not, you know, in a place where you feel like I'm going to be able to go for a week like completely without, you know, having a plan. Uh, I think that it's kind of just nice. I think it makes you feel uh I think it just makes you feel good about the vacation and excited about it. You don't want you don't want to have a, you know any kind of trepidation before going. Uh, another thing, just some practical things that I find make things smoother is I like to write down the address of wherever I'm going, whether it's a rental or it's a hotel, just on like the back of one of my business cards, and I just tuck it into my jacket pocket. Um, most places that I've been, it's been totally fine at the airport. You know, I just jump in a cab or get on a bus and. Uh, you know, if I just tell someone where I'm going, but sometimes, you know, I can think that my accent or whatever language, you know, sounds great and they have no idea what I'm talking about. So I find that if you write something down, like where you're going, you just hand it to them. It makes it easy for them. Um, I would load on my phone Google Maps. I would also download um, the offline map of wherever you're going, like whatever city that is, because then you don't need to have Wi-Fi, you don't need to pay for roaming charges, which is yet another thing to sort of, you know, another little detail before you go is to call your phone provider. Now it's so much easier than it used to be in terms so of much having, better. Um, oh my gosh, you could just call your phone company and they all have these plans now, like $10 a day. It's yep. like whatever, you know, it's a flat fee for the day. So you never get that, like some sort of, you know, $150 bill for data charges. Um, 
Horrible. So, you know, terrible. But just call before you go, you know, take care of that. Um, and then, you know, like, that, and this is the other great thing about being alone is, like, you, you don't have to – you don't have to do anything, um, but I think to have a wonderful trip and going back to the anticipation thing, I think now's a fun time to start buying some books that are set in the city that you're going to go to, to look up, like, what are the best films, you know, about this place or set in this place. Um, and in terms of if you are going somewhere where it's not the language that you speak, you do not have to learn the language, but I find that if you learn a few key phrases, it will do wonders I you know like I try to learn how to say like do you have a table for one because people are just very impressed by this and it just gets you a lot of (laughs) you know like goodwill points and they like you know I can say nothing else but that just instantly and because it's the first interaction you're having with a host or a hostess they are very happy to help you out after that um so and plus you'll feel good like you'll it, it makes you feel like you you know like I got this um and I learned a couple you know I you know you please thank you hello goodbye and then and and it's just it's just it's nice it's like it's polite and uh and people really appreciate it wherever you're going so you know those are just like a few basic uh, things I think that you know can set you up, and and some people like to do a little more planning than us. I will say, uh, you know, we, not to have the itinerary. You know, I'm going to go here on this day and here on that day. But uh, if you are going for a few days, it's nice to also just look up the opening and closing times of places, so that like you know, if you're only there for four days and the museum you really want to go to is only open two of those days. Like it would be a shame to miss it. So I think just a little bit of checking in terms of schedules is something you should do uh, beforehand. And then one thing, just a couple things like on the safety side is the state department uh, has something called step, which you can register for online. It's very easy. And you basically just go on, the yeah, just search like State Department step and you sign up and let them know where you're going, like what country you're going to. And if there's anything like political unrest or some emergency, they they will alert you in your via email to anything. So for instance, like when I was in Istanbul and there was some uh, you know some violence, I would get these emails sort of saying, please you know stay clear of this area, et cetera and because they have your information, um, they can also they know who you know who you are and where where you are, so they can uh, it's, it's helpful for them as well if they if there's anything that arises so that's an important thing to do amazing. those are all great, and I think hopefully that will help with people feeling comfortable going abroad and and doing whatever they like. Because I think increasingly people who may be writing and wanting to do some research would probably maybe want to do those yes. trips by themselves. Oh, absolutely. And, and the other thing, too, is now that, you know, the phone thing is so simple and there's free Wi-Fi at, you know, hotels or in cafes, you know, in a lot of different places. It's uh, You know, another thing I tell people is, so check, you know, check in. Like tell, you know, tell someone at your at home, like, okay, you're going to get, you'll get a note from me or you'll see on, you know, my Facebook page that I'm going to be here on this day. Um, I caution people, if you have a public page, you know, you don't want to be broadcasting where you are. Right. <laughs> that, that's not, you know, a good move. But um, you do, you do want to let a few people know where you are and, hey, if you don't, you know, you'll, you should hear from me at this, at this time. Um, and, and, 
you know, and then and then the and the biggest thing, you know, like there's no foolproof uh, system for you know making sure everything goes according to plan. But generally speaking, you know, and I've, I've actually I've interviewed. Um, professors who sort of study like stranger interactions and who say like it's so wonderful you know we meet people we don't know and it's such a wonderful part of travel uh, and they say but you know the one thing to always remember is you just sort of like keep like pay attention to your gut and if something feels weird or you just feel like you know I don't know I don't want to walk down this alley or something is just you know something just feels off to you you just pay attention to that don't write it off don't you know say oh I'm being silly because sometimes, you know, we can, we pick up things before our thinking brain really knows what it is that's setting that off, and that it sounds it sounds like very vague and sort of strange, but it really is true. It, it you just have to pay attention to your instincts, and if something doesn't feel right to you, you just don't do it. You just don't, you know, go out. You just don't walk down that particular street, or you know. Absolutely, I think that's really important. Because, yeah, there are things that we know, we don't know why we know them, but that doesn't mean we should Mm -hmm. disregard them. Right, exactly. One other resource I just want to give a shout out to as somebody who stays in touch with friends abroad, if if people don't have WhatsApp or know what WhatsApp is, Uh it's a good one for traveling because you can call and text just over Wi-Fi with people with international numbers. So for all yes. your new friends that you might make while traveling or people you want to reach at home, if you're all on WhatsApp, it's much easier to stay in touch without using up all of your data. Yes, absolutely. So that's my that's my resource shout out for this for this portion. Yeah, no, WhatsApp WhatsApp is great. There's another um one other thing I like, but this is not necessary, but I think it's wonderful for people like me who want to write down every single street I'm on and like, you know, be able to take all these notes. But then if I do that, I know that it's getting in the way of my experience and being in the moment. Uh, it's called Live Trekker. Ooh. It's made in Paris. It's like a French app, but it's in English. And it's wonderful. What you do is before you leave your, wherever you are that has Wi-Fi, your rental, your hotel, you, you turn it on, you put tracking on, then don't worry about it. And you can shut off your Wi-Fi. It doesn't need to be on go about your business the whole day. End of the day, you go on, there's a bright red line through essentially what is a Google map of the city, shows you everywhere you have walked, everywhere you've been, and it's brilliant. First of all, the maps look great. Like, they're beautiful. Like, it's the nice. sort of thing, like, I've told people, like, you could blow this up, frame it on your wall, and see where you went all around a city for the day. But it enables you, like, not to have to take notes and like photograph every street sign if you want to remember that wonderful little you know unknown alleyway that you went down um it's just it's great it's a great app and it's free uh i think it's free if it's not free it's like a dollar or something like that amazing we'll put it in the show notes awesome well i could keep talking to you about travel all day but i know that you need to get back to writing yourself so I'm so grateful that you were able to come on, Stephanie, and talk about the book. I hope everybody enjoys it and it inspires you to take some solo trips yourselves. Oh, thank you. This has been a lot of fun for me. For part two of our New York City episode, my guest is Lauren Weisberger, who was born the same year as me. I will not reveal what year that is. Um, She was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which, as she says is a locale made even more chic, if possible, by the office. She graduated from Cornell and then backpacked throughout Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. Once she returned to the U.S., she got a job as the assistant to Anna Wintour, 
editor-in-chief of Vogue. She then moved on after that job to Departures Magazine, writing 100-word reviews by day and taking writing classes at night. The result of all of this writing was, as we all know, The Devil Wears Prada, which was published in 2003. It spent a year on the New York Times bestseller list, was sold in 34 countries, and made into a movie starring Meryl Streep and Anne Hathaway. She has written a total of eight novels, the most recent of which is When Life Gives You Lululemons, out now. She lives in Connecticut with her husband, their two kids, and a spoiled Maltese named Stella. It was so much fun talking to Lauren, um, having thought so much about the sort of mythology, almost, of The Devil Wears Prada, and getting to follow up on those characters years later, where When Life Gives You Lululemons follows the assistant, Emily, who we all loved and was brought to life so vividly by another Emily, the actress, um, in the movie. So it was wonderful reading the book, wonderful talking to her, and getting to dive into writing taboo topics, taboo characters who really speak their minds, and really just having fun writing a book. So I know you're going to love listening to Lauren Weisberger. Hi, Lauren. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited to talk about When Life Gives You Lululemons, because in Revenge Wears Prada, we got to find out what happened to Andy. But I know that everybody who read Devil Wears Prada, like me, was really smitten with Emily Charlton and her sort of delicious inappropriateness, I guess, is how I might describe her. Um, She almost feels like as somebody who studied psychology, like the id incarnate, like every sort of impulse that you might have played out. Um, And I loved her transition from assistant to handling celebrity disasters as a career choice. And I was, I was wondering if, you know, it's, it's often that you get to see sort of the main character in a book play out, but it isn't as often that you get to come back to a beloved I don't even know if I want to call her a B character because she was so substantial, but I'm wondering how did you know you wanted to return to Emily and how did you begin to conceive of her story? You know, I think it's a lot of what you had said. I think that's a great way to describe Emily as the id character. I mean, it just in the simplest way, she is fun to write because she says what we're all thinking and don't ever say. Um, and I, I've just never had a character in all of my, my books that has been as much fun to write anything I conceive, she can say it, she can get away with it. And I think it was kind of, um, you know, in a way it was like a little bit of a shortcut because, because readers and movie watchers had gotten to love her so much um, in the movie. Emily Blunt did such a great job with her, obviously, as a character in the movie that I could almost just sort of leap into that with this book because people already have a, a notion about who she is, what she's like. It's it's not always so easy to write a character who's down, who's blunt, who's potentially obnoxious um, and still keep them likable. But I, I had that already in my favor with, with Emily, which was which was a big bonus. Yeah, it's interesting because you're playing in a really fun way throughout the book. And I won't spoil anything, but I think that there are a lot of types that you're encountering. I mean, similar to 
Devil Wears Prada a little bit where you're dealing with fashion types. But in this case, we're sort of straddling Los Angeles types, New York types, and interestingly, Greenwich types who end up possibly being the wildest of them all unexpectedly. So I was interested in how you kind of started to conceive of this crazy suburban world that she's navigating. And the other thing that was really touching was that in the center of it all is this supermodel who you never think of as being the innocent bystander, but in many ways, Carolina is in this book. Yes, yes. Well, again, I think you hit on one of my main points. I thought it would be so interesting to set up a situation where you have, you know, like you said, you've got these really, of the characters, you've got these three really sophisticated women, Miriam's Harvard Law School. She'd worked at a huge law firm, lived in the city, lived all over the world. You've got Carolina, who is quite literally a former supermodel and a senator's wife. And you have Emily, and we know her story. She's also lived and traveled extensively. These are not naive women by any stretch. They're sophisticated. They're well-traveled. They probably think they've seen it all. And how fun to send them to the suburbs where they must think that this is totally the B team, um, complete amateur hour, and have them be absolutely blown away by what they see. I I just thought that was so much fun, such a great backdrop. Um, And, you know, again, without giving too much away, that is exactly what happens. They they find themselves through a series of circumstances in this very affluent suburb outside of New York City. And what goes down there is crazy, um, even to their potentially jaded eyes. Yeah, I, I had this thought as I was, you know, one party in particular stands out. But I mean, there are a number of them, but um, either women's events or just regular parties and a, a family that hosts parties. Um, that having you brainstorm, like, was it clear what was going to happen at these parties? Or I had this thought of you like writing lists of things that could happen and saying, Ooh, I could get crazier than that. And wondering how far you could take it and have people believe this actually happens in Greenwich, Connecticut. Well, you know, first Greenwich is definitely, um, it's, it's stand in for really any, I think very affluent, suburban town of a big city I don't think it's alone and I certainly don't mean to pick on Greenwich um, (laughs) but you know it's recognizable a lot of big hedge funds there people have certainly heard of it know it Um, that said I would not describe all of these things as giant crazy runaway figments of my imagination Um, this does happen (laughs) this is not so far-fetched um are some of the stories and anecdotes exaggerated of course um but in no way is this like being down from outer space this is this is real life for certain groups of people in these towns absolutely yeah i mean you have to have something to do when you have a certain level of money money. and a lot of time that's exactly right (laughs) yes yeah, I, I, I always find that fascinating in my own limited professional exposure to these kinds of communities, the, the sort of level of um, extracurricular activities um, that tend to crop up. Because, I mean, I think in some ways to have that much level of money, it must be boring in a certain way. You have to keep it interesting. That's that's I think that's exactly right. And a tremendous amount of money and effort is put towards um, entertainment you know, in terms of 
parties and events and decorating and clothes and to some extent travel and tons of it is poured into uh, the children. But um, I think that's, that's exactly right. Like a, a, a lot of money plus a lot of time equals a lot of outrageous behavior. <laughs> it's a formula. Yes. Um, so, okay. So my question is, how are you, you know, you wrote Devil Wears Prada in 2003, or it came out in 2003. Yes. So you have a history of writing about these populations. And people know, you know, that that was in some ways based on a job you had. So you're not mm -hmm. averse to putting your life experience or your witnessed experience into books. So how are you navigating kind of getting access to these kinds of experiences and hearing about them without people saying, shut up, here comes Lauren, we know she's going to put this in a book. Good question. And that may be happening. <laughs> I'm not sure that may be happening. Um, but, you know, I think at, I think fundamentally, friends, family, people that we socialize with certainly understand that this is um, ultimately satire. Um, I'm not specifically describing any people or actual events that have happened. Um, it's definitely inspired by things I've seen. Um, we lived in the, you know, I lived in the city for 16 plus years. Um, I thought that I had kind of seen all the craziness and then I moved to Connecticut and I was really in for a treat. So um, I think it is always a, 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 you know, you write what you know, you write what you're surrounded by, you write what you see. And uh, that's definitely been the case with this book. I think that's fun about it. I mean, I think it's also interesting to, with Emily, as you said, she says the things that we all want to say or that we're all thinking. And it's, yes. I can imagine it being very cathartic to have an experience of getting to write a character sort of like Miriam, who in a way is dealing with it in her own way. She's no longer in her familiar law firm environment. She's not getting to attack the world. And I love, there's a bit when Miriam shows up at a party and sort of in a side comment to herself that she's more uncomfortable in this situation, just a bunch of housewives around in this context than she would have been, you know, going into court. And right. I think that sort of um, human experience really brings something and makes the whole thing more engaging. So you can put yourself, at least through Miriam, I can imagine I'd be a little more like Miriam than Emily. Mm -hmm. Although mm -hmm. I think some of us would feel pretty good about ourselves if we could have moments of being like Emily. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so you get to approach this and then at Carolina, who is in many ways an outsider because of her career, and because of being from another country and kind of coming at this from a slightly different expanse, and then because of her appearance, because everybody recognizes her. So you're having these three different ways of entering an extraordinary set of circumstances. So how was it to kind of switch back and forth between all of those approaches and to handle the same, um, the same events in a different way and to put different filters on them? Right. Well, that was really one of the the, the best parts of the writing process for me. Um, I have only once before with um, Chasing Harry Winston written, you know, from sort of an ensemble perspective. And I really enjoy it. It's, um, it keeps it, for me, it keeps it pacey and interesting. Um, and it is, it's exciting to 
look at the same situations through different lenses of personalities. And when you have, especially when I have three women of similar ages and means and um, backgrounds, uh, it, it pushes me and challenges me to make them different enough and unique enough that they stand out on the page. So um, as a writing challenge, I really enjoyed that. And I also hope very much what happens to readers is a little bit of what you experienced where they can relate to, you know, at least one of them in a, in a, in a stronger way. Yeah, absolutely. I was curious about the way that you structure the writing process because you're you're not it's not a straight linear. Like sometimes you're jumping back a little bit, sometimes you know, it's it's largely progressing forward, but I wonder did you write each person's narrative separately and then slot them together or did you outline how the whole thing was going to happen? it's it's pretty complex so i wondered how the process was of executing you know the way the sections jump back and forth right no i definitely definitely did not write each of their sections separately i wrote um i wrote in a very linear fashion i always write a first draft um i sit down i start at the beginning i write it all the way through and i finish it i do not um go back edit reread anything like that until i'm finished with the full draft um and at that point certainly also with help from my editor um you know i had some huge realizations um i had i realized having written it straight through that we didn't meet um graham carolina's ne'er-do-well husband we didn't actually see him on the page until like three quarters of the book was finished so I would go back then and rewrite a scene and weave him in where we get to actually, the reader can meet him face to face. We can see what's happening. We can get a feel for who he is as a person. Um, so it was more things like that. It was kind of writing straight through from start to finish and then realizing where things um, either didn't work or needed uh, tweaking and going back and filling in from there. Yeah, I can see where Graham would kind of disappear. <laughs> Um, and be seen through a television screen or, you know, how you see him from far away. That makes right, a lot of sense. Right, right, And, you know, he's a lot of the driving action. I didn't want him to be, he's, you know, the entire book, but we needed to actually meet him at some point before the very end. So no, there, were, there were a number of things like that, things I didn't even realize I had done until it was, the first draft was finished. So did you know how the book was going to end when you started writing it? Or was there anything that surprised you in the process of, of writing that first draft? Um, I certainly, you know, I will, I know, yes and no. I knew, I absolutely knew that Carolina would be, and I, you know, again, I don't want to give too much away, but I knew that she would be redeemed and I knew that she would find her own footing. Um, I did not know um, that, how Emily ends this story, uh, how we leave her at the very end. I won't, I won't say anything more than that. I did not know that that was going to happen. Um, and with Miriam, I just sort of knew in a general way that she was sort of having this, this crisis um, of identity, having given up her job and moved out to the suburbs and trying to sort of make peace with what her life looks like now. I, I wanted her to find some resolution, but not necessarily a clear-cut black and white answer. I'm hedging a little bit on answering yeah, of that, course. but I don't really... It was a combination, I guess you'd say. Yeah, I would think, because I think 
this is always the tension. Like, is it, if you figure everything out in advance and then write the draft, then it's not that fun to write the draft. But if you don't have some sense, then it's really hard to figure out where you're going. So, Agreed. so I Agreed. think at least having one that was clear on how it was going to end and others that were in a general area, that seems like an ideal balance. Yes, it did. It worked. It worked well for this time. I, w I won't say it always does, but the, luckily this time it did. So what else about the, uh, did you know from the beginning that you wanted it to be multiple perspectives? Or was that something that became clear as you started to explore Emily's story in particular? I did. I knew that from the beginning. Um, I didn't necessarily know what they looked like, but I did very much um, want, I wanted to see, you know, in, in Devil Wars Prada, in both the book and the movie, um, I think Emily is a wonderful character, different in each, but wonderful, but we don't really see her ever, ever, ever outside of her runway world and I wanted to see what what it would be like for her to have female friends I mean the, the the kind of female posse was interesting to me and I was dead set against um having Andrea be a part of it um I couldn't really I love that they keep in touch again I don't want to give anything away Andrea makes like a very 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 brief cameo just so we, mm -hmm. in and we know what she's doing but um I didn't want in any way this to be her story I really wanted to see 10 years out um, what Emily was like, not just with, um, men and her career, but with, but with peers, with women, friends and equals. So that was fun to explore for me. I think it's also fun to see the way that she has friends because in witnessing her character in the original book, one might ask the question, does Emily have friends? <laughs> is right. she, is she the sort of woman who just doesn't get along with other women? And so it's interesting to see her that that there is almost like a lioness protectiveness energy that has come from her work and that she doesn't, even if she's she's not exactly a warm and fuzzy creature, she does have this protective and strong impulse to help in a way that maybe even she, I think if she thought too much about it, might find it a little horrifying. Right. I think that's very well put. Agreed. So... I hope that everybody really um, enjoys the book. It was really engaging. One of the things that I enjoyed was it's true that with the switching back and forth, I was like, oh, but oh, and then you're left at the end of one thing and you go to something else and then you just want to keep reading. So it certainly does that for you. So I think that everybody will enjoy snatching it up and finding extremely fun, distracting and enjoyable summer reading. Terrific. That's the hope that it's, um, you know, it's a book to kind of, pick up on the beach by the pool on the plane and just lose yourself in if, if uh, somebody tells me that that's what they experienced that uh, puts a smile on my face for sure absolutely well thank you so much for coming on to talk about it and of i hope course. everybody enjoys when life gives you lululemons thank you so much thank you so much for listening to the secret library podcast we hope you've enjoyed this week's show you can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.